So Money, episode 688, Mrs. Frugalwood. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Karabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. Welcome back to another episode of So Money, everyone. Thanks for joining me here. I'm your host, Farnoosh Tarabi. Really happy to welcome back a former So Money guest. You might remember her, Mrs. Frugalwoods. I love having on former guests, especially when it's been a bit of time. It's been about two years, more than two years, actually, since she was on the show. And always love just catching up to see if your money mindset is still the same, what's evolved, what's your latest So Money moment. I first introduced you to Mrs. Frugalwoods, who is the blogger behind frugalwoods.com. It was back on episode. 239. And at that point, she was still hacking away at uh, achieving financial independence so that she and her husband could retire. They were hoping to retire in their early 30s, and they did it. She's 33 years old today. They've officially reached that goal. And also their parents to a two-year-old girl and have another girl on the way. They've left their jobs since we last spoke and have more or less retired. They've moved away from the city life as well to a beautiful homestead in Vermont with 66 acres of woods. Mrs. Frugal Woods is also no longer anonymous. It was a little bit of an issue back then. They didn't want their colleagues and family and friends to necessarily know that they had this kind of tell-all blog. But now Liz is out. And uh, now that she's achieved financial independence, she has inked a book called Meet the Frugal Woods, Achieving Financial Independence Through Simple Living. It comes out on March 6th, but you can pre-order it today. We talk about how she and her husband are still sticking to their frugal ways as parents, the financial benefits of living in the woods. And I ask her, you know, where do you see yourself in 20, 30 years what have you got planned? I'm curious. And do you think your savings will last all that time? Here's Mrs. Frugal Woods. Mrs. Frugal Woods, Liz, welcome back to So Money. Thank you so much for having me. Since we've last spoken, your daughter's grown up. You were actually just pregnant with your daughter at the time. She's now over two years old. You're expecting your second baby. And you have another baby, your book. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Meet the Frugal Woods, Achieving Financial Independence Through Simple Living. A lot's happened in two years. Tell me, let's catch up. I know that you, uh, you were blogging anonymously largely and your transparency, uh, without, with the exception of who you are, your names and stuff like that, but you were very transparent as far as, you know, your whole entire financial adventure, logging your monthly expenses and how you are living on the path to financial independence. And now you're there. Uh, tell us a little bit about the last two years and how things have really built momentum. 
So last time we spoke, my husband and I were still living in Cambridge outside of Boston and really still in the planning phases of moving to our homestead in the woods. And that has since happened. So we moved out here to 66 acres in rural central Vermont in May 2016. And we had our first daughter and now we're just about to have our second daughter. And we became financially independent and left our careers in the city to pursue a radically different lifestyle. And much of what we've done is documented in Frugal Woods and also in my book. And it's really the story of how we decided to start putting our time and our money towards only our highest and best priorities. And now as parents, your highest and best priorities are your children, I'm guessing. Yes. So how has that changed your take on managing your money? Interestingly, I think in a lot of ways, having kids has impacted us much less than I thought it would. Um, We were very fortunate, my husband and I, that we were on this path to financial independence and extreme frugality before we had our first child. And I think that made a big difference for us. So we really weren't trying to retrofit a lifestyle with kids into frugality. It was more that our child came to us during this time that we had already ingrained frugality into everything that we do. So it was very much like, oh, okay, well, we're frugal with everything else. So having a child is kind of no different. And in a lot of ways, she just kind of became part of our lives and had very minimal financial impact, which surprised us because, you know, conventional wisdom tells you that kids are radically expensive. (laughs) And what we've found is that it's really not the case. And one of the big things for us is that we don't pay for daycare. And so that is a huge expense. You know, if you are both working outside of the home, you have to pay for daycare or a nanny. And that's kind of an unavoidable, very expensive thing that you're going to be hit with every month. So in the absence of that, we've found that just about everything else can really fit within our frugal parameters. So we have used things for her, you know, all of our nursery furniture, her clothing, her coats, her boots, all of that stuff is used and it's either hand-me-downs or stuff that I find very inexpensively at garage sales or thrift stores or clothing swaps. Her toys are used. A lot of them are hand-me-downs or again, you know, they were 10 cents at a garage sale. So we found that we really have been able to incorporate frugality into our parenting. And for us, the frugal mindset is also a mindset of simple living, minimalism, and focusing on the things that matter to us. And so ultimately, it's not about buying a lot of stuff for our kids, but it's about providing them with great experiences and spending a lot of time together as a family. Childcare absolutely takes a huge, one of the biggest bites out of any family's budget, especially in the early years. And I suppose if you don't have that to cover, that leaves a lot of money on the table. I am curious though about your social group. I know just from other people who've been on this podcast, one of the, what's helped a lot of people get out of debt, save more, live a life of uh, smart frugality is surrounding themselves with a supportive community. Do you feel like you have that? And as your daughter gets older, of course, she's going to make friends. You're going to make friends with her friend's parents. And they may live completely different lives and lifestyles and spend differently. And like it or not, that is going to influence, at least uh, to some extent, your daughter's perspective on um, money 
and may even put some pressure on yourselves. So I'm just curious if you experienced any of that as parents in the new parent community. So one interesting thing is move to rural Vermont because (laughs) just about everyone out here is extremely thrifty. And so we really feel like we've sort of found our people in a lot of ways. And we have just this amazing community of people here and a wonderful group of young parents that we feel very fortunate to be part of and lots of friends with little kids. And it's the type of town where we don't have a restaurant, we don't have a movie theater, we don't even have a stoplight. And so all of our socialization is done at each other's houses or at the library or at the town center. Everything out here is a potluck, even weddings are potlucks. And so this is like a very much our way of living. Um, And it's just a fantastic place for us to raise our kids because there's a huge focus on spending time outside. So we do lots of hiking and playing outside, playing in the snow, taking our kids to the creeks and the ponds together. And so in many ways, I feel like we sort of lucked out because we have this community of people who really value similar things to us. And what I would say, you know, kind of as the counter to that is that we do want our children exposed to the broad diversity of cultures and ways that people use money. And so I know that that will be part of our lives going forward. And for us, it's really a question of deciding what we value as a family and then just teaching our children, well, you know, this is the way that we do things and other people are indeed going to be doing things differently. And we have a flexible approach. So it's not as though we spend, you know, zero dollars on our child. For example, she goes to preschool now two mornings a week at the little local Waldorf preschool. And that costs us around $200 a month. So, you know, it's not nothing, it's not a huge expense, but it was a decision we made because she was just so ready to get out there with her buddies and do arts and crafts. So she loves going to preschool. And for us, that's a very values-based spending decision, you know, that's in alignment with the things that we want for our kids. So I think when we keep that at the forefront, our philosophy of parenting and money management, while making sure that we're doing what our kids want and need to do. That's great. And I I would give you more credit than to say you lucked out. I mean, you chose this area, probably knowing that you're not going to be surrounded with people who want to always eat out and buy fancy cars. It's true. We actually, we did do a lot of research and that's how we landed on Vermont as our retirement destination because we did sort of do exhaustive research into it. And it's, it's very interesting when you live in a place where, you know, there is no takeout, there are no restaurants. So it does change sort of the social dynamics. And I find it makes us a much more tight knit community. Your book, Meet the Frugal Woods, uh, largely probably based on the blog, but what is there anything additional new bonus material that's in the book that blog followers and fans can get on top of uh, the experience on the site? Yes. So the book is totally freshly written. So it's a brand new take on our story. I did not recycle blog posts. So that would, that was really tempting as I was rewriting these chapters, you know, 18, 20, 25 times, <laughs> but it is, um, a newly written piece. And it's really a retrospective of all the decisions that my husband and I made to reach financial independence. And it's much more about our mindsets and the shifts that we had to go through in order to accept that the life we'd been living, this very standard life in the city, working nine to five, 
was not fulfilling for us and acknowledging that uh, ultimately we'd sort of made the wrong decision in pursuing these careers and that we wanted to make this radical departure. And I don't, I don't think there are a lot of examples of people doing that, you know, following sort of a successful career and then saying, you know, actually, I really just want to move out to the woods. So coming to terms with that myself and being okay with letting go of some of those traditional metrics of success was an integral part of the journey for us and is a lot of what I talk about in the book. I probably asked you some of these questions the last time you were on, but so much has changed. You've become a mom, you've uh, become a published author, you've moved, you've officially reached financial independence, you've moved out of Boston. Is your husband also retired too? So it's interesting. We actually, what I find retired to be sort of a funny word because we both still work in ways that make money because we enjoy doing it. And so I like to say we're financially independent and we choose to work. So, you know, writing and writing the blog. And my husband does uh, software engineering work because he enjoys um, doing programming. And so our lives are sort of a balance of this work that we do on computers and then work that we do out on our land. And then of course, parenting, which is an ongoing, (laughs) an ongoing, ongoing, labor of love. What was life before kids? Who knows? Oh my gosh. I know. What do we even do with our time? I'm not, I have no idea. (laughs) Watched more Netflix. I don't know. I guess. Um, I suppose we should just call retirement financial independence because that is a lot more attractive sounding at least. But what I was saying is that, you know, what last time you were on, I asked you some questions about your, you know, probably your money mindset, your financial philosophies, your wins, your failures, your habits. And I'm just curious if things have evolved since we last spoke. So if I can, if you can indulge me, I would love to revisit some of those questions and just see where you're at now. And starting with your, uh, your, I suppose your money mindset, your, your financial philosophy, what is it today? It's interesting. I think I'm a lot less focused on money now and a lot more focused on the way that I use my time. So at the outset, working towards financial independence was very much a money game for me. I was thinking about how much we were saving. We were looking at our earnings, always thinking about our investments and if we were doing the right things. And now so much of that for us is on autopilot. So we have a pretty straightforward um, asset uh, class and a pretty straightforward portfolio of assets. We have a rental property. um, We have low fee index funds. We have 401ks from our W-2 jobs. I have a solo 401k, 529s. It's a pretty straightforward breakdown. And most of that is really just automated. So I don't put a lot of thought into that. For me, this has really become much more about simplifying my life now and simplifying the things that I allow to take up my time because I went through the whole process of only spending money in ways that I wanted to. And so now the focus is, all right, how am I going to use my life only in ways that I want to. You know, it's a great privilege that I have that I don't have to work. And so I try to only take on projects and only do things that bring me fulfillment and that I think will have an impact and will be allow me to sort of do good work. When we last spoke too, you were trying to keep yourselves pretty anonymous. Now that's all over. 
<laughs> What's been some of the interesting stories that have come out of you guys being more transparent about your story from friends, colleagues, family? What's been, can you share like one interesting experience just from maybe someone coming to realize maybe that they've been following you and didn't know they knew you? Yes, I have had that happen. Um, and I, I think what's interesting is I've always been really open on the blog about our thought process and sort of who we are without revealing our names and our faces. And so in a lot of ways, it was almost anticlimactic when our names and faces came out because everybody said, oh, well, we, you know, we really kind of already know you. And I think what's interesting is I don't really lead with the frugal woods thing in real life. That for me, it's, you know, it's my passion I am deeply connected to advancing financial literacy and just loving what I do. But I, I don't always tell people that that's what I do. Sometimes in real life, I say, oh, you know, I'm just, I'm a writer, I write about money, <laughs> because I find that it is a very difficult topic for a lot of people. And my approach with my friends and my family in real life is that they know what I do. And if they have questions, they can come to me. And I'm always happy to talk people talk with people about their finances, but it's not really that prominent for me because I do find it can be a very uncomfortable topic. And so I have friends who have read the blog for many years and do sort of consult with me about their money. And I'm so happy to do that. But I'm also perfectly happy with all of my friends who do not read the blog and do not care about money. And so I think, you know, kind of having that balance where in many ways, I, I am Mrs. Frugal was and I do embody that. But then in a lot of other ways, I'm just this person who happens to be a writer and a mom. You said uncomfortable to describe some of the to describe some of the relationships what makes it uncomfortable? I think for a lot of people, money is just a third rail topic. You know, it's along the lines of politics and religion and they don't, they don't want to think about it and they don't want to talk about it in a social setting. And so I try not to put people on the spot and I try not to, um, evangelize, you know, my, my personal feelings on, on financial management in a social setting, because I don't think that it's necessarily always, an appropriate topic to bring up. So I think I'm a little bit less um, forward about it than I am when I'm writing about it online, because I feel like that's an elective audience. If they come to the blog, if they read the book, you know, then they can really dig into the philosophy. But otherwise, I'm kind of low key about it. In the last two years, what would you say has been your so money moment? Probably reaching financial independence, I have to say, and being able to leave my job and really pursue a career that I love. So what is financial independence? Let's talk numbers. Sure. So for us, we define that as the point at which our um, assets and our passive income cover our expenses and then some. So what it means for us then is that we don't need to work in order to earn a living. And we don't draw down on our assets, but we have a a very comfortable rate of withdrawal that would allow us to draw down over time. So um, we have, I think I mentioned sort of this portfolio of assets that we maintain. And we don't share the actual numbers on the blog, but we kind of give the guideline um, that other people could follow if that's what they want to do. 
and you have amassed quite the following. What's been something that your audience has actually taught you about money in the process of being transparent and sharing? I'm sure with connecting uh, with your audience, they've also enlightened you in some ways. Oh my gosh. Yes. I, so many of my ideas and inspiration and motivation come from the stories that I hear from my readers. And, you know, what I've really come to understand is that the money piece of it is secondary. You know, the money ultimately is just numbers in a spreadsheet. And when you can get yourself to the place where you accept and acknowledge that that's all it is, then you're going to do fabulously. It's much more this emotional, uh, you know, trauma that a lot of us have wrapped up around money and around how we should or should not be using our money. And so, you know, what I hear from readers all the time is that the question really is, what do you want to do with your life? Not how do you want to use your money throughout your life? And so coming at it from that approach has really helped me and enlightened me in understanding what people need when they're talking about personal finance and how I can be helpful to them. Our So Money Question of the Day brought to us by Chase Slate, which is one of our top sponsors on the show, our exclusive sponsor, is what is your number one money habit now? Now that you're a mom and you're, you've achieved financial independence, do you even have to really think about habits anymore because you've just accomplished everything you wanted? So what's left to do? You know, I think that my money habit is really acknowledging that I'm happiest with less and letting go of that drive to want more and to reach for perfection and to, you know, think that I can buy like the perfect toy or spoon or outfit for my child, you know, really letting go of that and just embracing the simplicity of not having always the perfect thing or the right solution and that it's I'm not going to be able to buy it in a store. I read that uh, you haven't thrown your daughter any sort of like parties. You haven't really bought her anything expensive. What's well, like the, the, the most sentimental or special thing that you've done for your daughter that did cost money? That did cost money. Oh, that's a good question. Well, you know, we do uh, birthday parties for her. We just, we're very low key about it and we do them at home and we sort of make our own um, food and treats for that. And so I think it's hard to identify any one thing because we're so fortunate that we get to spend every day with her. Well, I mean, you know, mostly fortunate. She is two years old. So we do have those moments where you know, it's not the greatest day, but I think being able to expose her to nature is the greatest thing. And we love just watching her explore outside and like discover snow and discover the creek behind our house during the summertime. And so, you know, we really don't focus very much on buying things for her. And I have to say, I, I would be hard pressed to think of something that we've, um, spent much money on for her. I think as she gets older, facilitating experiences that cost money will be more important. You know, going to museums, going to plays, um, taking her to New York City, things like that are things that we plan to do down the road. But as she's still so young, a lot of it really is just time spent together. Well, speaking of the future, where do you want to be in 20, 30 years audience Mrs. Frugal Woods is 33 years old. 
So. I'm almost 34. I'm um, almost okay, 34. I'll give you that. Almost 34. <laughs> a baby by all intents and purposes, respectfully. Um, it's a good thing. It's a good thing. But I, I do wonder for those guests that I encounter who are um, under 40 and have, you know, made maybe millions or enough to feel financially independent and they've retired from their nine to five and they're enjoying life now, but how you enjoy your life today is not necessarily how you might enjoy it in 10 years and 15 years. So how do you plan to adjust as you age and as you might decide I'm, I want more or less or different and how, how, what if you figure like you've made projections today, but life happens, right? And you're allowed, I hope you're giving yourself allowance to um, change your mind about how you want to live your life. You decide one day you wake up, you know what? I think I want to live in New York city. Absolutely. And it's funny because we've actually talked about living in New York city one day. And for us, Financial independence and frugality is all about options. You know, we've given ourselves the option now to live here on a homestead, which is what we want to do. And we'll have options in the future if we want to do something radically different. You know, for us now, we really want to live in this place, in these woods for the foreseeable future. You know, it's, I can't really imagine us not being here. There's so much that we want to do on our land that takes a long time. You know, we have fruit trees that are coming to uh, maturing and we want to do maple syruping. And a lot of these projects are very long term. And it, you know, it takes many years to sort of get your homestead up to the point of production that you want it to be. And so for us, we're still in that slow ramp up of uh, producing the fruits and the vegetables and the things that we want to. So we are so content and so happy here. But it's also true that we do have the gift of options and we do have that choice down the road if we wanted to leave the homestead and and move elsewhere and, and live a different life. And so I think it's wonderful to always enshrine those possibilities in, you know, whatever financial plan you make. And I think it's a great point for people who say, oh, well, I would never want to quit my job. Why should I save money? And it's well, because you never know. And my husband and I are both worst case scenarioists. So we're always gaming out like, okay, here's what we would do in a zombie apocalypse. Here's what we would do if we decided <laughs> to make this change, you know, and it's, it's something Do you have that, a panic room or something or <laughs> No, we do not. But the biggest problem that we see with the apocalypse is coffee. We can't grow coffee here in Vermont. So this would be a, a real problem for us. Um but I th- I think it's always a good idea to have the financial flexibility to pursue something different if life changes or if you change, like you said, if you change your mind and decide that you want to do something else, you know, that's certainly what my husband and I did in coming here. It was a radical departure, but we put ourselves in a position where we had a lot of flexibility and that's what we're doing now too. With your husband, it sounds as though you both are very much on the same financial page. It sounds like this was a team effort from the beginning. But I do wonder when you were transitioning into this uh, very focused effort to you know, retire, quote unquote, retire from your jobs and, and uh, change your entire financial lifestyle, who was the one who initiated the idea? And was there any kind of like I don't know about this from one of the spouses at first as, <laughs> as it is a pretty radical, um, radical take on, on managing your money. 
It is. So we're lucky. We met when we were 18, which is we were a freshman in college. And then we got married at 24, which is like ridiculously young. I can't even believe. So we've been together for a pretty long time. And we have both always been frugal. And I don't know that we even would have identified that we were frugal. But I mean, we throughout college just reinforced that in each other. And as young adults, you know, when we got engaged and when we got married, we were both always focused on saving money and on that concept of delayed gratification. And neither of us had any debt. Neither of us had any desire to ever go into debt. And so in a lot of ways, it was this shared financial approach that we had from the beginning. And then as we talked about financial independence and extreme frugality, it really became this competition for us that we thought, okay, what more can we do? What more can we save? Who's going to come up with like the next good idea, you know, for how to save money. And so I think my husband's biggest concern was selling me on the woods part of it. Like the financial piece, no problem. I'm, I'm totally there. But the woods thing, you know, he's like, are you sure you want to live in the middle of nowhere? I said, no, I, I really do. Because he has always wanted to live in the woods and be like this modern day lumberjack engineer, which is what he is now. And for me, that was something that I really came around to through this shared hobby that we had of hiking. I'm not really an outdoorsy person, but he got me into hiking and I was like, wow, I really like being in nature. And so I think that was probably for both of us, our biggest concern was, you know, would I be okay having lived in New York City, Washington, D.C., Boston? Would I be okay in the woods? And the answer is yes, I absolutely love it. What's your favorite part about living in the woods? I don't think I could ever do that. I I can't even go (laughs) camping in an RV. I think I would... I think I would appreciate it for a couple of days, a few nights, but I don't know. I don't know. I've always, well, I haven't always been an urban girl, but I just think at this point it would be really tough. Well, and it's not for everyone, you know, and it's something I I like to highlight on the blog is that this was my goal, but this is not probably your goal. Um, You know, the themes that I talk about are much broader and can take you in any different direction. And it's also good to remember, we are not camping because I would not live in a tent. My husband would live honestly in a tent, I think year round. I told him, no, absolutely not. So, you know, we live in a very comfortable home and we just happen to be in the woods. (laughs) So for me, it's actually much less dramatic in a lot of ways than it sounds because I have the internet, I have electricity, you know, it's not, it's not exactly roughing it. And the best part about being here for me is the lowered stress and anxiety. There is just no stress because you go outside and you're just surrounded by beautiful nature and it's quiet. And to me, it's very peaceful. And I don't at all find it lonely, which is interesting because I thought at the outset, gosh, I wonder if this is going to feel lonely. But for me, living in the middle of the city and not knowing all of my neighbors and like passing all these people every day that I didn't know felt a lot more isolating than it does here where maybe I see fewer people, but I know all of them and I have a really nice, genuine relationship with most of them. That's so nice. That is really nice. I think that's something to aspire to. All right, let's do some so money fill in the blanks. Now you may have already done these two years ago, but I don't think you remember oh, what you gosh, said. I don't remember. <laughs> you don't at remember. All. <laughs> no. It's okay. You know, 
I think it's okay to ask these questions every couple of years. It's not going to kill you. (laughs) It's not going to bore us to death. If I won the lottery tomorrow, now I know you don't have to win the lottery. I doubt you play the lottery, but let's just say someone knocked on your door and gave you and your husband a lump sum of cash to the tune of, I don't know, $100 million. The first thing I would do is... Well, I would work on an investment plan for it first, and I would probably put more into my donor advised fund, which is a tax advantage way to give to charity. And then honestly, I'd probably redo our kitchen because the countertops, we need to do something about the countertops. So I think I would probably do that. But honestly, I think we would stay living right here in this house on this property. We are just so, so content with where we are. Kitchen countertops can really upgrade the value of your home. I'm just saying. I yeah, we it's it's on our list. It's like one of those things that's on the list because they are green plastic. I don't I don't know what's going on with that. So you know that that could be improved. Nice. Uh, when I splurge, please. There's got to be something, right? <laughs> when I splurge, <laughs> I like to spend my money on. So my husband and I go out to dinner once a month and it is just fabulous. Our neighbor comes over and watches our daughter. She she will not accept money. She's very, very sweet. So she watches our daughter once a month and we go out to dinner and it's fantastic. And I order whatever I want and I don't worry about the cost at all. So interestingly enough, I did end up pulling up your archived transcript from the two years ago. I have it in front of me. And do you know what you answered to this two years ago when you were still trying to get to the financial independence? I said, I said, what's one thing that you love to splurge on your guilty pleasure? And you said seltzer water. Oh, yeah, that's true, too. That also is still true. Seltzer water is like. 18 cents if you buy it by the bulk. I (laughs) it's even cheaper for us because we hacked our soda stream and put a a 20 pound CO2 tank on it. So of course you did. It's like partial pennies. (laughs) Wow. It's like, it's like a 0.001 cent. Yes. All right. One thing that I spend on that makes my life easier or better is uh, is it strange to say electricity and internet? No. And my washing machine? I just absolutely the, love my washing machine. I love your answers because even even True. two years ago, you said your car. Like just... Oh, yeah. Yeah. Basic car. necessities, a car, electricity, internet. Those are the things know. that make your life easier and better. I Yeah, of course. Because if they go away, your life would it's be really, really difficult. You know, in New York City, I didn't have a washer dryer in my apartment. It's just like the worst hassle in the world. So I love my washer and dryer. I would kill for a washer and dryer in my apartment. See, you know what I'm talking about. But our, our building is not uh, compliant with that. I think we, we would just all, um, we would, the building would implode if everybody got oh, a washer no. and dryer. See, the woods isn't sounding so um, bad. I have a high efficiency washer and dryer. Oh, I'm so jealous. All right. When I donate, I like to give to blank because? So we have a donor advised fund and I have a philosophy of giving to small local organizations. So we really focus our donations on our local community and there is a great deal of need out here. And 
I'm a big fan of looking at the overall operating budget of a nonprofit and finding places where I feel like my donation is going to have the biggest impact. You know, huge nonprofits, the Red Cross, the United Way, they do fantastic work, but they have huge budgets, you know, millions and billions of dollars. So any dollar amount that I give is not really going to be that actionable versus I have local organizations I support with budgets of, you know, $50,000 or $100,000 annually. And so I feel like my gift can have a much bigger impact at a smaller, more local organization. I think that's pretty true all around. Uh, Well, with some exceptions, but certainly good advice because anybody who wants to make the most impact, it's really about understanding how that charity or nonprofit maximizes your dollar. And you can go online to sites like, I believe, uh, what are they? Can you help me out here? So Charity Navigator. Charity Navigator, yes. You can, and you can also just look at the Form 990 for nonprofits. So I used to be a nonprofit fundraiser, which is why I sort of ah. have a lot of thoughts about this. But, you know, you can look at their IRS form. You can see what their CEO is paid. And, you know, you can just sort of make a decision about whether or not the dollar amount that you give is really going to be actionable for them. Mm. During the crazy hurricanes in Houston, um, I discovered a charity that I loved because they made it really simple. They said for every dollar that you donate, it was the Houston Food Bank. Um, For every dollar, I think that would allow you to supply something like two to five or five meals uh, for for an individual or for a family. That's great because then I can really, in my head, I'm like, okay, so if I gave $100, that's 500 meals. Yeah. And you can really, it's tangible. And I think as a donor, it makes you really feel a bigger connection to that, to that, uh, experience. And, um, to the extent that charities can do that, I think that's really powerful and can increase their donations. Absolutely. All right. And excuse me, one thing I wish I had learned about money growing up is Anything. I wish I'd learned any, I mean, truly (laughs) something, anything about money. I, you know, well, uh, how inspiring that you feel that as you grew up with very, and that's most of us, we grew up with not a lot of financial anything and you can too retire. You know, now you don't call it retirement, retiring, but (laughs) let's be honest. It's retirement in my eyes. You're not working for uh, somebody else. You're doing your own thing on your own terms, on your own time. 33 years old. That's phenomenal. Well, thank you. And it's, you know, it's largely self-taught. And I think that's what's so great is there are so many resources and books. You can check them out from the library. You can read online. You really can teach yourself. And that's kind of the wonderful thing. And the thing that I love to demystify that, you know, money is, it's not really that complicated. And I think we're led to believe like, oh, you know, you have to hire somebody. It's very confusing. You're not going to do it right. And it's, you really can learn. And I started, the first book I read was Personal Finance for Dummies. I am not kidding. And it was a great book. Personal finance for dummies. I'm writing that yes, down. It's truly. It wasn't like, you know, the millionaire next door or. No, no, I was like. You're so money. <laughs> no, <laughs> I read that. Well, you, no, you would think that I would have found, but it was like on sale. It was like the library bookshelf sale. You know, it was 10 cents. I was like, oh, well, okay. I'm definitely don't know anything about personal finance. So I'll look at this. It'd be interesting for you to reference that book again now and I, see if 
if it really does live up to its, you know, if it does really per- deliver. I should read it again. I really should. I think I still have my copy. Liz Temps, thank you so much. Mrs. Frugalwoods, we really appreciate you coming back. Congratulations on all the amazing developments in your life. Your family's growing, your bank account's growing, your, oh gosh, and you have a book. Everyone check out Meet the Frugalwoods, Achieving Financial Independence Through Simple Living. Answer this for me. Has anyone come knocking on your door to do a reality TV show? You know, I actually have been approached about that. And I, how did I'm, I know? <laughs> I'm, I'm not really a TV person in terms of me being on the TV. You know, I really like writing, being on podcasts. I'm, I'm not too sure about me being on TV. <laughs> Why? What is there to lose? Everything. Uh, well, the kind of TV that they probably, I, I mean, look, I work in television. I, I'm not saying that. Um, I believe that to be true for all in all cases, but you know, reality TV. Let's be honest; it's a it's a risk. Thank you so much again, and um, good luck with the rest of your third trimester. Hope you're resting and uh, taking it easy. Thank you. Thanks so much for Liz Thames, Mrs. Frugal Woods, for stopping by. Her blog again is frugalwoods.com, and Liz is on Twitter at frugalwoods. If you'd like to download the transcript or the audio, just head over to somoneypodcast.com. As always, we have all the goodies there. And you can also ask me a question for the Friday episodes of Ask Farnoosh. Just click on Ask Farnoosh while you're at So Money Podcast. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. Hope your day is so money. Money.